Okay. <sighs> Good, Good morning. 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 When was the last time we recorded? Good uh, I don't know. Several weeks. Uh, fair. Um, yeah, if you hear some piano in the background, that's my sister. Because <laughs> she is now teaching half the week at home because of mm. th- things. Well, I mean, we can be quite upfront with this. We're back in lockdown. We've been in lockdown for two weeks. Um, I mean, it's a it's a very soft lockdown, but it definitely... Wow. It, I mean, honestly, it. I would still call this a soft lockdown. I mean, if you just look across um, the causeway... Yeah, yeah, that's true. No, no, that's, that's a fair point. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. was... I was commenting to my sister yesterday that because Malaysia has had, they call it the movement control order, right? MCO. Yeah, the MCO, yeah. And they've had several versions of it. They've yeah. Had, they have the just the good old MCO and then they've had CMCO, which is conditional movement control order. Yep. Then I think they have like a five-level system. Yep. Which goes from... So MCO is the middle one, and then the softer versions are conditional MCO and recovery MCO, and then yeah. the harsher versions are enhanced MCO, and now the full MCO. And I was commenting to my sister that they need to find something that begins with B for the recovery MCO and something uh. that begins with. E, uh, with D for the normal MCO and then now they can have a B, C, D, E, F grading system yes correct yes I don't know I mean this is just the kind of thing that I entertain myself with nowadays because very um, good I, I don't think I've left the house in two weeks I so, have only been going out to get food uh, and you know uh, which no, more or less comes to me <laughs> I yeah I mean much as I would like to you know it's it is pricey to order in all the time so yeah so I mean speaking of which my 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 mom has been kind of taking the opportunity to just order all sorts of huh, like, exotic not exotic last Sunday we had fried chicken and okay. this Sunday we are also having fried chicken <laughs> I mean yeah fair enough. Yeah, there's, uh, there's, you know, there's nothing to it. Um, <laughs> I think part of why I've just been at home is that I am temporarily unemployed. Mm, well, um, transitioning between positions, shall we say. I mean, it's, it's, yes, transitioning between positions. Um, my contract with one company ended and my employment with the same company is about to begin. So <laughs> I have just been sitting at home doing nothing. Well, uh, playing I... Playing a lot of Civ. Playing a lot of Civ. Oh, so. fair enough. Yeah. I mean, in, in slightly more interesting news as well, in very interesting news, I got vaccinated yesterday. Yeah. So how, how is it? My left arm feels like it's been punched very hard. Okay. Uh, it, you know, it's that sort of it, 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 not in sort of okay you know when when you get punched right it doesn't you go through stages of 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 sensation yes this is sort of the day after the punch type of thing where okay. it's recovering right so okay i mean yeah basically it's a dull sensation it doesn't i wouldn't say it hurts per se it's just that it feels off 
Right. right. It feels like it doesn't, you know, you, you don't get the full sensation. And every time you move your arm, you feel a bit of, you know, pain. Right. Uh, but it's not, it's not severe. So the first dose, apparently, this is the general uh, uh, side effect. Okay. But the second dose is where it gets, oh boy, apparently it gets quite rough. Right. I'm, I'm curious about this because the last vaccine of any kind that I had was... 10 years ago, maybe? BCG? No, I think I had, I want to say an MMR booster, I think. Okay, okay. I can't remember. Oh, Um, I guess before you travel to the US, meningitis. Yeah, yep. Yep. Right, Um, because that's a problem there. Yeah, so I had a meningitis um, vaccine for sure before I went to the US. Yeah. Um, Especially because um, college dorms, so yeah. it was actually a condition of of staying in the dorm that you had to have the meningitis vaccine. Yep. Um I remember that mostly I remember it how unremarkable it was. <laughs> because Right, yeah. I think I remember meningitis being very sort of yeah, not not very interesting. I agree. Yeah. It literally you just get the pinprick and then yep. you forget about You're, it. Yeah. Right. Um you even forget there's a plaster there. Then you go back. Yeah. You oh, I've got a. Pl-. Then you you know yeah. you realize oh, there's some blood. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm trying to think. In recent years, I mean, I've had like cannulas. I've had you know blood drawn and things like mm-hmm. that. But well, I guess it's different, right? When you're getting your blood drawn, um, as opposed to when you're getting something injected into you. But yeah. I, I, I don't know. I guess I'm, maybe I've just been lucky. Like, my injections in general have been completely unremarkable. Well, so, I mean, let me look up the meningitis vaccine because, I mean, obviously, this will vary depending on the, the sort of the, the mechanism of delivery of the vaccine right. Right, and what the vaccine is. So let's see. Uh, right. Blah, 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 blah. And I mean, obviously, an mRNA vaccine is a, is a new thing. So. I, I yeah, guess. so meningitis, yeah. there are two kinds. One is a conjugate vaccine. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. So a conjugate vaccine is a vaccine that joins a protein and an antigen. So okay. you're, getting the, you're getting the full protein, basically, and the antigen helps to bind to a antibody. Right? It triggers antibody response much better. Okay. Right. And then I'm, the recombinant one okay is where... I don't actually know what any of that means. So. Okay. So... Interesting. Like so there are two to, kinds like, of go all the way back to like yes, okay. secondary school biology. <laughs> okay. So essentially, how any vaccine works, right, yes. is that you need to trick your body into producing uh-huh. a protein that uh-huh. is part of how the body recognizes the virus, right? So every right. virus has proteins surrounding its uh, whatever structure it has, whether it's a coronavirus, whether it's right. a bacteriophage, right? All viruses have a sort of an outer shell of proteins, right. and why the body recognizes and reacts to these viruses is that they see that these proteins are unfamiliar. Okay. And then they go, all right, we have to attack this. Right. Right. So whether it's HIV, whether it's, you know, coronavirus, whether it's the common flu. Um, and so different viruses have different sort of um, protein signatures, shall we say. Right. Okay. Right. So what a vaccine does is that it traffics a protein to your body uh-huh. somehow, right? And then the body goes, hey, I don't know that protein. And then it triggers an immune response. Right. Your body produces antibodies 
to right. fight off this protein. And so the next time you get infected, you already have that baseline antibody presence in order right. to fight off any virus that comes in. Right. And just, just to be clear, if you were infected with the corresponding <coughs> virus, right, mm -hmm. your body would also have an immune reaction. It's just that the virus outpaces the body's ability yeah. to fend it off. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So right. Um, in the past, right, how vaccines have been developed or how vaccines have been deployed, there are various kinds of vaccines, right? Some include uh, dead virus. Yep. So I think, um, I'm not sure if this is polio, but some vaccines basically just take the, the live virus. They, you know, they kill it by boiling it or something like that. Right. But what you have left are these, you know, protein fragments um, that are still uh, part of the virus's signature. And then, the, you know, you right. ingest it or you inject it and then the body goes, hey, you know, I'm right. going to mount an immune response. Now, how the meningitis vaccine seems to work is that it delivers the raw protein. So uh, it right. delivers the protein either as a protein bound to an antigen. An antigen is what binds to an antibody. Okay. Okay. So by attaching the protein to an antigen, I think, I'm not entirely sure, but I think it probably enhances the rate at which the protein is recognized by the antibodies. Okay. And then attacked. Right. right. And then the other way is to put this protein into a dead virus and then to deliver yeah. it into the body. Right. Right. So, I mean, uh, how an mRNA vaccine works is, I mean, the general principle is the same, but the delivery mechanism is different, right? Right. So an mRNA vaccine, so one of the problems is that synthesizing proteins is a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. Proteins are fairly large molecules, yep. right? Um, because a peptide is huge. Right? A single peptide that makes up a chain of polypeptides that forms a protein is quite right. enormous. Yep. Right, whereas DNA is relatively a relatively smaller molecule. Right, okay. Right. So what an mRNA vaccine does is that it goes one step prior, right? In order for the body to make a protein, or okay, in order to deliver a protein to the body, you can either deliver the entire protein, okay, or you can give the body instructions to make the protein. Right, okay. Yeah? Okay. So an mRNA is a is a piece of genetic material that mm -hmm. provides instructions to the body to make a specific protein sequence. Right, okay. Right, and so when you inject an mRNA vaccine, the body goes, okay, that's mRNA, right? Standard protocol is to turn the mRNA into a protein or to read the mRNA and then make a protein from the instructions. Right. Right, and so the body right. makes a protein and goes, ha, huh, what's this protein? <laughs> right, and then it attacks the protein. Right, okay. That, <laughs> and well, so that the, makes sense. Yeah. And that yeah. would also explain why the body seems to have a... Like, the physiological response is a little bit more pronounced compared to typical vaccines, right? Because there's I more mean, going on. Perhaps, I don't know. I mean, this is something that I, I don't know nearly enough about. You know, I know I mean, the, the I general... I know nothing, so I'm just, like, talking out of my... <laughs> I, I'm not yep. a vaccine biologist, but I know yep. I, I know my basic cell biology, uh, which right. I think is it goes a long way. Um, but the other interesting thing about the mRNA vaccine, and you know, the reason why they deliver mRNA and not DNA, uh -huh. right? Obviously, is because number one, um, DNA. Well, the, the the process by which DNA is read is much more complex, right? Okay. Because there are various levers in the body, shall we say, in the cell that switch on and off. Uh, you know, that determine which parts of the genome are sequenced. 
you okay. won't want your, for example, your skin cells to be producing, uh, to be to be uh, uh, producing proteins that are normally found in the liver. Right. Right. So within your different cell types, there are different sort of switches that govern right, right. which parts of the genome are red and which parts are not red. So if I deliver a DNA uh, strand as uh-huh. a vaccine, right, controlling the mechanisms that determine whether, you know, how, whether this yeah. DNA strand is turned into a protein is very complex. Right. mRNA is much more basic because the body goes, you know, I see mRNA, I will, trans- I will transcribe it into a protein. Right, right. Right. The okay. downside is that mRNA is notoriously unstable. Right. Um, RNAs in general are extremely unstable. They degrade very quickly. Right. Is that part of why there are such logistical demands on transportation? Yes. Right. That is definitely one of the main reasons. Um, I mean, for one, right, well, every part... On transportation and storage. And storage, actually. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and of course you know the shelf life of the of, of the of the vaccine as well. Right. Right. So, uh, I mean, for one, right, there are these proteins called RNAs. These are proteins that okay. degrade RNA, and they are literally found everywhere on your skin, on the table in front of you, on your computer. <laughs> they are ubiquitous in nature. Right. Okay. Uh, because it is a natural defense mechanism, right? To to get rid of any potential RNAs that might be lying around. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. In fact, in the lab, if you work with RNA, and I don't uh-huh. work with RNA, but if you work with RNA, you have to use special RNA-free water. So water that's specially treated to remove any uh, RNA-degrading proteins. And this bottle of water costs, I think, $12 per mil. Okay. $12 per milliliter. Okay. <laughs> Is, All right. What the shit? Okay. <laughs> That's how stupid expensive this water is. So in order for the mRNA to be delivered safely into the body and to reduce the uh, to arrest the rate at which it's degraded, the mRNA has to be encapsulated in a uh, in a fat uh, right. capsule. This part starts to sound familiar. Yeah. Well. Yeah. This is you know I guess secondary school biology, right? The the the, the phospholipid bilayer. Uh, uh, well, not, not no. that part. I think not that part. The, the, the familiarity comes from <laughs> just general press coverage of... Okay, fair. Yeah, of how the vaccine works and stuff like that, which <laughs> clearly I have only absorbed the weirdest parts of. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, so basically it's it's encapsulated in a layer of... Um, it's, it's essentially fat, right? It's a, it's yeah. a, it's a lipid... And so that sort of um, helps to reduce the rate at which um, uh, the the virus the, the mRNA in the in the oh, the mRNA is broken down, and okay. so that you know is is essentially the the long and short of an mRNA vaccine. It's I think also very interesting because it's probably easier to synthesize. I'm, actually, I don't know if it's easier to synthesize mRNA given how finicky RNA is, but it's probably much more adaptable rather than okay. figuring out you know how to synthesize a protein because. I mean, the other problem with proteins, of course, is um, uh, this is hard to explain. But when we think of proteins, okay. right? Some people just think of it as a chain of peptides, a chain of okay. amino acids. Yeah. Which, yes, is true, but uh-huh. proteins also have to fold. Proteins have a right. three-dimensional structure. Right. Right. It's like um, if I, uh, how should I put? It? If I take a rubber band, 
Okay. okay and I, you know, I, I turn it, I linearize it, I turn it into a single strand. Okay. Right. That single strand is the, the, the sort of what we call the primary structure of the, of the rubber band. Right, right. Right, a straight line. But right. if I were to twist the RNA, uh, twist the rubber band, what's going to uh-huh. happen is it's going to start forming these hairpin loops. It's going to start forming yep. these twists and it start, it'll start right. to adopt a three-dimensional structure. Right. Right. And that's what happens in proteins. Proteins okay. have a three-dimensional structure. So it's, it's essentially a globule rather than right. a string. Right. Right. And, and so I think for one any given yeah. for any given linear string, like there can be multiple structures. Yes. That, okay. Yes. And or, they all behave differently, uh, you know, or yes, because okay. how the the body recognizes the proteins is by recognizing this three dimensional structure. Right. Right. By because the shape any, of it. <clears throat> yeah, by the you know the presence of certain crevices or the certain yep. you know okay. jutting out portions that they are able to recognize. Okay. Which also means that the you know if I assemble it incorrectly or if I assemble different parts you know at different stages it Uh might fold differently right right and protein folding is not a trivial uh, uh, issue Um, you know predicting how proteins fold is actually a huge computational problem yep that supercomputers are not really able to do very well because it involves a lot of inference um, de novo Uh, but surprisingly Gamers are very good at doing because it's problem solving. Right. Okay, that's interesting. So there is this project called, I think, um, Protein Folding at Home or something like that. Oh, okay. Uh, which I think is a bunch of scientists from Rewash in Seattle. Right. They have gamified protein folding. So they give you the protein structure. Uh-huh. They give you... And then you basically have to try to fold this protein structure to reduce right. the energetic state of the protein as much as possible. Okay. Right. And then that's basically the the the, the physics, the, the biophysics of protein mm-hmm. folding. It finds the most stable conformational structure. Okay. Okay. Right. It right. finds the right. most stable right. three right. dimensions. Because each yep. amino acid in the protein chain has different properties. Some of them are hydrophobic, some of them are hydrophilic. Yep. Some of them are positively charged, some of them are negatively charged. Right. And so all of these properties need to interact with each other in order to find a stable state. So usually what happens is if you have a protein with, say, for example, a lot of hydrophilic residues, mm-hmm. hydrophilic and a lot of hydrophobic amino, uh, amino acids, uh-huh. they will try to fold in such a way that all the hydrophilic uh, amino acids are on the outside of the globule and all the hydrophobic residues are inside. Okay, right. Right? Right. So, so that's sort of the, you know, how, how protein folding works. It tries to reduce the energetic state of the protein right. as much as it's, possible. It's a kind of optimization problem. Yes. But in three and, dimensions. Right. And computers are not very good at this. Yeah. Un- right. Understandably. Yeah. Yeah. Because the number of solu- possible solutions to this, you know, I mean, how a computer would do this is it would explore every possible yeah. solution. I mean, computers are not very good at reasoning geometrically. Yeah. And then finding the, I guess, you know, using some kind of likelihood based yep. probability method to find the best possible fit. Right. Um, I think one of the problems, of course, with computers is that just exploring parameter space is difficult. Mm-hmm. But there is there was a recent uh, paper, I think it came out of Google or IBM, that mm-hmm. showed that they were able to develop a machine learning algorithm that was able to fold proteins almost as well as a human 
uh, human uh, scientists. That's, that's interesting. I mean, machine learning is still very much a black Early days. box. For, yeah, black box as well, yeah. Uh, I mean, I was going to say for me, but in general, it it is, it's... It's still a black box, which which I think is why it's such a big feel. I, I don't know. I mean, this is obviously something that I have been looking into um, mm-hmm. from a you know professional and also academic point of view because I know nothing about it, right? Like my CS background so far is purely from the point of view of software engineering, right? Yeah. And on the one hand, I mean, obviously, software engineering is not a solved problem because you're dealing with human beings. Yes. Like how do you organize a group <laughs> of human beings to put together uh, a software project in such a way that it's extensible? Um, but I think if you if if you think about you know from the point of view of of where is computer science as a discipline heading towards, mm-hmm. you. You, you would be dumb not to think about <laughs> machine learning, basically. And yes. I think this is something that um, has been... I mean, obviously, as, as a discipline, you know, there are, there are a lot of things that, that we still need to figure out. For example, how do you um, ensure the quality of the inputs that you give to the algorithm? Because this is... The funny thing is, um, I think last week, there was a um, sort of little mini conference that mm-hmm. uh, ThoughtWorks Southeast Asia organized. Yep. And I didn't catch most of it, to be honest, but I caught like little snippets, right? And one of the one of the talks was about um, was about building building data products. And the one of the points that was made, was that when you build a data product, very often people talk about what your algorithms should be, mm-hmm. right? Or how do you create a way of... How do you create kind of like insight, right? And very rarely do people talk about the, the data component of it. You assume that the data is already in, is already ideal, yeah. Right? But yep. very often, <clears throat> the quality of the data is the low-hanging fruit. And very often, if your data is poor quality, the best algorithm cannot help you, right? Yes. Which, it's also... it's It feels kind of duh, but it's <laughs> also the fact that... That's the part that a lot of people don't want to deal with. Because it's the it's the less sexy part, right? It's, it's, it's where it gets very tedious. Yes, correct. <laughs> um, data, you know, working with data is a tedious process. Yeah, and uh, Andrew Ng, the guy who, who machine learning guru, right? Yeah, the machine learning guy who yeah. used to teach at Stanford and things like that. I he made a post on, I want to say LinkedIn. I don't remember where I saw this, but he made a post <coughs> um, just this week saying mm. something similar, which is mm. from a machine learning point of view, people always try and optimize the code, but maybe we are not spending enough time trying to improve the quality of the data, right? Mm. Which, firstly, besides being a limiting factor for the quality of the code, 
or, or rather, you know, for any given um, piece of code, right, better data produces better results. I think that's not, that's not controversial at all. But probably yeah. if the quality of your data is better, it tells you how to improve your algorithm in a mm -hmm. more meaningful way. I mean, at this point, I'm just making this all, all of this up because I have no idea about anything about machine learning. But, yeah. um, I mean, regardless, I'm, I'm going to take like a left turn, right? And think about, um, well, not surprisingly, computational linguistics. Mm. Because, I mean, on, on Reddit, right? I saw a post, you know, on, I think it was out of the loop, um, the subreddit out of the loop where somebody was asking right. what's up with people posting on Facebook um, you know and yeah. talking about say like vaccines but substituting an asterisk for the A or nice. you know like doing like Moderna but then using an at symbol for the okay. A or you oh, know that geez. kind of like or zeros for, for O's and things like that like isn't that yep. kind of silly uh, what's what's up with that? Like, is it just trying to confuse some kind of algorithm somewhere, or or, or what is it? Mm. And the answer of it, the answer was two parts, right? One is yes, because if you talk about vaccines or like Pfizer, BioNTech, or Moderna, then there's a higher likelihood that Facebook is going to flag it to be like, okay, you, you know where 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 there is that message that says, you know, this post appears to be about vaccines. Get the latest yeah. information about vaccines here, right? That kind of thing. Yeah. But um, that's the algorithmic side of it. The human yes. side of it is people just don't want um, trolls to start swarming them. I mean, of course, that <sighs> whether, whether that actually makes a difference, I don't know. But the idea is that there are trolls who mm -hmm. search, right? They search for vaccines and then they just post. Yeah. And if you want to avoid that, then you obscure the keyword so yep. that your friends will see it, but then the trolls don't. Yeah. Uh, and then people started talking about, well, I mean, isn't 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 this kind of... Do we imagine that the Facebooks and Googles of the world can't come up with an algorithm to figure out this kind of obfuscation, right? And I don't know that we do. Because... The thing is, yes, if you're talking about a specific case like vaccines, if you have a word that you feed into the machine, mm -hmm. then yeah, sure, right? Can we figure out... We, we can figure out the various ways in which people might talk about vaccines, right? Yeah. Especially if the obfuscation is very trivial, like substituting yeah. just the straight-up substitution of one word for another, right? Or, yeah. you know, if you talk about like the word similarity... This, I mean, which is how like spell check works, right? Yeah. This word yeah. does not belong in the dictionary. And then I run an algorithm to determine which are the closest matches. Yeah, string um, matching essentially. Yeah, yeah exactly. And like those are, those are relatively um, solved problems at this point. Yes. But I was thinking some of this is actually a lot more challenging for a machine because if you think about, say... Um, the subreddit Tales from the Front Desk which I've mentioned before mm -hmm. I believe yes uh, I'm not <laughs> sure whether it's on the podcast I think I, I have I so have, they yeah. have a Tales from the Front Desk is a subreddit for people working in hospitality especially people working in the front desk in hospitality right customer facing 
eight yep. hours a day, yep. five days a week or more, Ugh, right? Dear God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To share their stories about all sorts yeah, of people that they Positive need. and negative stories, I should, uh, I should clarify. <sighs> I mean, let's be honest, it's like 90% <laughs> negative. <laughs> right? Wow. Yeah. Mm. And the subreddit has a rule that says do not post the name mm. of your workplace. Yes. And at first, you're like, well, okay. Um, so that they cannot be identified, right? But when you look at the details that people give, <laughs> they'll say like, oh, um, I work at the Schmilton Hotel Schmilton, in such and such yeah. city. Or, yeah. um, you know, this is, we are at the Barriott Monvoy Hotel or something <laughs> like that, which is obviously just Marriott Bonvoy is the loyalty program, right? Of, yes. of Marriott and things like that. So how do you, I, I think, okay, Marriott Monvoy is, you can probably pick that up through a spell check algorithm. Something yeah. like Schmilton though is a bit harder because yes. this is a linguistic phenomenon, right? Um, there is a term for it, although I can't remember. Um, would it say, would it be like Yiddish reduplication or something? Oh, so, right. Yeah. Let me see. Schmer reduplication. So, Schmer. yeah. So this is the, the phenomenon where you'd say <laughs> like fancy schmancy. Yep. Yep. Right. Yep. Oh, wow. Shit. So, yes, there's yep. a term for it. Gosh. Yeah, there's a term for it. So this is like when you say like baby schmaby says yep. Wikipedia. Right. So, um, yes, it is a, you, you, as a human, you see the similarity immediately, right? Yes. But how do you teach a computer to do it? Now, of course, if you know of the phenomenon of Schmer duplication, then great, good for you, right? You just look for Schmer at the beginning of a, yeah. of a word, right? But at some point, you leave the realm of like phonological, um, you know, just like purely phonological changes and you get into semantic or pragmatic modifications. But and I mean, that's a bit that... more challenging because there, for example, right, people talk about uh, in, in, in the Tales from the Front <coughs> Desk subreddit, mm. sometimes you'll see a reference to Windy Bacon. Right. Which, which is, you know, Windy Bacon is... Uh, is actually Wynham. Yes. Right? Wynham Hotels. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that is obviously is a, is a, is a, what would it be? Like, is your substitute. Rhyming creating, slang. <laughs> I mean, you're creating a substitute through the use of synonyms, right? But then what about cases like, um, like, okay, Holiday Inn, then yep. somebody says, Vacation out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Um, things like that. <clears throat> or like so, know, Motel I mean, 6. These know? are going to be situations yeah. where machine learning will fail spectacularly, I think. Because, I mean, the whole, the whole premise of machine learning is that you're feeding in a training data set. So your yeah. pri- you must have some kind of prior yes. understanding of the, of the system in order for you to train an algorithm... Right. to recognize patterns, right? And right. so if you encounter a novel pattern, 
and humans are very good at you know at making novel patterns, then of right. course you're going to have to retrain your entire machine learning algorithm. Right, but I think the 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 question is because mm-hmm. the fact that humans are able to do it, right? Mm. Is it possible to can can you turn that logical train of thought, right? Can can you systematize it? I think is the question. And I right, this is difficult because you feel that it might be possible, right? I don't know. So the funny thing is, way back in in JC in junior college, mm. this is exactly <clears throat> why I wrote my KI independent right. study on. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I mean, I, I don't have a very satisfactory answer. And I'm not going to post my KI independent study in the show notes. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know how well it stands up to developments, but I don't think the fundamental idea has changed. So to, to kind of, at, and at the risk of potentially sounding very dumb, because neither of us, Right, is an expert at machine learning by any no. stretch no. of the imagination, and we're not really privy to the you know the most cutting edge advances in ML. So yep. maybe there is something else that's promising in this direction. But um, the underlying premise of my independent study which was written in 2007 (laughs) okay was okay was answering a question in an in an era where computers can compute much faster than humans Mm. what is the role of humans in finding things out yeah and i think this goes back to the protein folding question right when co- when you, there is so much computational power available to you, what are humans doing in research? Like, can we just <laughs> let can we let a neural <coughs> network loose and right just have it find things out for us? Well, I mean, um, okay. So in this case, in in the case of the protein folding argument or the protein yep. folding um um scenario, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's it's actually a sub. I don't want to trivialize this, but it's probably less complex a scenario because you have reasonably good metrics for judging the accuracy of a fault solution. I think that, that that is one of the, the big things, right? It's when you easier have, to systematize than linguistic tricks. Yes, it's, when you have yeah. a, a problem to solve, yes. how do you decide what the best solution is? You right. need to have a metric for assessing the goodness of fit. Right. Right, so between your empirical data and your model. Yeah, where, it's actually where modeling. Going, where you're yeah. going with this, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the human is faster at creating um, solutions, but the computer can determine whether the solution is close to optimal. I disagree. I think humans are better at assessing optimality of solutions because okay. if you're if you don't have a good heuristic for assessing optimality, okay, okay. right, the computer is not going to be able to decide. Fair enough, yeah. Right. And if you if you throw an, a completely new piece of information into your model, a human is much better able to go, okay, this is a model failure, not a, a data failure. Whereas a computer is going to go, oh. 
Right. Is the model failing? Is the data failing? I the cannot tell. The computer has no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I think humans are much better at judging um, right. solutions, which is why humans don't need to explore the entire damn parameter space because right. we know how to find local optima and then extrapolate from there. And we know when our local optima have stalled and then we can jump right. to another point right, right. to begin with, which so, is why mm-hmm. the, the UWASH uh, 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 software that I've put in the show notes, uh, mm-hmm. it's called Folded, Competitive Protein Folding, um, has been has been okay. surprisingly successful because these gamers are essentially using their intuition right, right uh, to find the best solution for protein, uh, pro- protein confirmation folding. Right. So here's the, here's the thing, right? Um, I mean, in that 2007 independent study, which, yes. I mean, come on, you know, we were 18 years old at the time. Like it's, yeah, I know, right? It is what it is, right? Um, <laughs> One of the things that I wrote was actually along the lines of um, there was this argument that was made about chess, which mm. I think was was similar, right? That at that time it was considered suboptimal to to do a computation for all the possibilities, right, from a particular point in the game. Yes. And um, I mean, there are there are there are things that are actually interesting about chess well, and computation. Okay. so so chess be- has two interesting problems as well, or oh, not two interesting po- things that make it in- computate computable, tra- computationally tractable. There yeah. is not only a heuristic for assessing optimality. Uh-huh. In terms of pre- well, that's that's much more challenging because you're you're trying to second guess what the other person is going to do. Yeah, right, but. Your parameter space or your your is very limited. It's so restricted the, by yeah. Here's the thing, right? It is limited relative to today's computational power. Right. Uh, sh- yeah. 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 Fair. <laughs> right. Because back at that time, it was assumed, or I I wouldn't say it was assumed. Uh, I don't think they necessarily made that assumption, but they it couldn't be solved with the computational power of that time. So the, uh, the other thing is, um, today, if you learn chess today, right? Like when I learned chess as a kid, I was taught, uh, well, I learned it through a computer game. So <coughs> go figure. Same actually. So, yeah. So I, the, I was taught, right, that how do you determine <coughs> if a, how do you determine if a trade is worth it? Yes. Right? Um, and there are point values that are assigned to the different pieces, like a pawn is one point, mm. and a rook is five points, you know, and a queen is nine points, and things like that. So that actually, I don't know if historically um, chess players used that point system. No. But it was, uh, if I am not mistaken, right, it was something that Claude Shannon came up with when he mm. was trying to solve this problem. Yeah. Right? Like he yeah. was trying to <coughs> to solve the problem of, you know, can we teach a computer to play chess? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this was one of the things that he did along the way, which was create a point system so that we can calculate the value of a move. Yes. Right? Have I mentioned how Claude Shannon is relevant to biology before? I think I may have, right? 
um, information theory possibly, and entropy. Possibly. Okay. Anyway, um, do you want to talk about a it? segue? Because I don't. Uh, let's let's stick with chess. Let's okay. stick with chess now. Then we'll we'll okay. talk about it later. Right. And so the thing about about chess was also Claude Channel also proposed two different approaches. Right. One is the brute force approach. Yeah. Um. Where you know, given the set of given given these point values that we assign to the pieces and given that you know at, at the start of the game you know there are 20 possible moves right and then yep. at each point there is a finite number of possible moves and each state of the game right produces a set of possible moves which then produce a set of possible responses and some of these ends these some of these states will lead to checkmate for one player or the other. And then you just calculate them. Yes. Right? Yeah. You just calculate, okay, from here, can I reach a checkmate? From here, can I reach a checkmate? And and, and so on and so forth. Or can I reach a yeah. checkmate within X number of moves? Right? Yeah. And so there is a certain depth to your calculation as well. Because, you know, from the start of the game, yes, obviously you can reach a checkmate, but in how many moves? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, yep. And I mean, the answer is two. The, the fastest checkmate is two moves, but... Yes. That's Queen's Gambit, is it? Yeah, but you wouldn't normally play that way. Yeah, that's right? true. And, you know, people know to avoid the Queen's Gambit as well. Yeah, exactly. Days, right? so. Exactly. So, <laughs> so that's, a, but that's, a different, that's a different matter from, from what we are looking at. The yes. point is, there is one strategy, which is a essentially a brute force strategy. Calculate everything... Yes with whatever computational power that you have available. And then there is the, what is essentially an optimality strategy, mm. right? Which yep. is, um, or maybe not an optimality strategy. I mean, there, there is- It's a, a ranking. It, it is a ranking or possibly even like a Bayesian strategy, which I mean, okay, whether a brute force strategy mm. can be Bayesian, that's, a, that's also another story, right? But the idea yeah, is... Actually, th this seems frequentist to me. It's just, you know, you're computing the, the likelihood of victory yes. given what you have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right? right? So, um, the, 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 the second strategy is more based around some kind of... It, it's trying to mimic the way that a human would think about it, right? Mm. Which mm. is, okay, there are some positions that are stronger than others... Um, as a matter of principle, right? Yep. You want to avoid, you want to give yourself, um, you know, open lines. You want to avoid doubling up pawns. Um, yep. You want your pieces to control as much territory as possible. Things like that, right? There yep. are some yep. structures, some patterns. I, I think pattern recognition is probably the, the way to talk about it. The human recognizes patterns in the game. Right? Yes. Patterns both in terms of gameplay and in terms of shapes. And so yes. you want to teach the computer to to look out for such patterns in a sense, right? And play towards them. Yep. And what happened was people kept trying to write chess playing games that would do the kind of pattern method, right? The, the way that a human might play. Yeah. Um, until computation just became available enough and cheap enough yep. that you could brute force it. Yes, correct. Right? And 
I think um, the thing is, people talk about, okay, but chess as a game is much more finite than a game like, like Go, right? Mm. Where yeah, the yeah. possibilities from a brute force point of view are, is a combinatorial yep. um, number and of possibilities. And there are now algorithms that play Go with, you know, uh, with incredible efficacy already. Right. right, because computational power has increased by leaps and bounds in that in, in in this relatively short interval of time. Right, but also it doesn't have to be one or the other, right? Mm. You can because um, AlphaGo, if I'm not mistaken, is not a brute force. It's not right, a brute right, force right. program. Right, it's taking advantage of improved computation and mm. better algorithms. Yes, right, better yes. machine learning. Yeah, and then we still have the possibility of quite literally a quantum leap, right? Yeah. Where they're talking about how the RSA, um, how most encryption today, which depends on the fact that computers have a limited amount of computation. Mm. Okay, so, so this, this, is a, this is a two-part thing. Um, RSA encryption, right, is an... Let, let me actually put that in, in the show notes because for two reasons. One is I can only remember vague details. Um, <laughs> and so yeah. I also want to look at Wikipedia. We are getting older. So. <laughs> yeah. And secondly, because uh, I don't want to misspeak. So I yes. want to have the Wikipedia page in front of me. So the RSA um, algorithm, right? Or the L- RSA crypto system, mm-hmm. right? Um, the way that it works the way that it encrypts things is that it depends on the fact that we don't have a way to calculate the factors of a number. Right. Ah, yes, yes. Okay, yes. Right. And I mean, it is kind of a very classic, you know, (laughs) comp science problem, which is given a number X, how do you find all the prime factors of X? Yep. Um, And yeah, there are ways to kind of optimize it but ultimately you are still coming down to a kind of brute force right yes you're still doing prime factorization then i mean you're, you're still doing factorization by right by, now by force. Like, yeah yeah, yeah right it? now we don't have a better way than mm. to just keep dividing the number <laughs> until you yep. can't anymore right <laughs> So, you have a string of prime numbers, and you just keep iterating through the prime yeah, we, numbers. We don't and... have a we don't have a ma- uh, we don't really have a mathematical way. I think Ooh, the thing yeah, of, right. of determining That's the rough, prime even for of a computer. <laughs> yeah. how humiliating okay. for a computer. Sorry, right? But, but it, the problem is, yeah, you can say humiliating for a computer, but as humans, we don't have a better way of doing. We don't. It. Yeah, we don't have a formula for it, right? We don't yeah. have an efficient formula for it. No, or an efficient algorithm for it. So, the the crypto system is really banking on the fact that it is easy to create prime numbers, but difficult to find prime factors. Mm. Right? Okay? Yep. It's easier to do one than the other um, yep. for us right now. But um, this creates two problems. Firstly, right, in a situation where future computers are able to find prime factors for today's numbers, Mm -hmm. for today's keys, you have a problem. Yes. Right? Yeah. 
And secondly, um, you can't depend on there never being an algorithm for such a thing. <laughs> because yeah. it's not been proven either way that it's impossible That's to find true. a better algorithm, right? Yeah, yeah. We have not yet determined that there is no such algorithm. The completeness of the solution. Of yeah, a exactly. Solution. Yeah. So it is a question mark. Like if we were to somehow create a quantum computer with a magnitude, all right, orders of magnitude more computing power. Yep. Then, well, who knows? It's it's two two sides of it, right? Who knows whether we actually need better algorithms at that point? Yes. And secondly, if we do get better algorithms, what seemingly intractable problems suddenly look very tractable? Mm. Mm. Yep. Yep. Yeah, anyway, um, well, yeah, my, I mean, my so, kind of so, throwaway conclusion from, <laughs> from my independent study was computers are better at computation than we will ever be. I don't think, yes. that's, I don't think that's controversial. Correct. And so it, it eventually comes down to, to this. What I said at the time, I think, was like the role of human beings is, is really going to be qualitative. Like yes. you're just never going to be better at computing. Computer. No, computer. I mean, computers are very good at, at computation so long as it knows what it's computing. So long as yep. it's given a very fixed set of parameters within which yep. to compute something. And that I mean, so that's set what of parameters, you're going to do as a human. Yeah. You right. tell the because computer what to compute. For example, if I'm trying to solve a problem, right, say, say chess, I yep. have to tell the computer what the, per, the, 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 the formal parameters of chess are. Right? A knight can yep. move this way, a queen can move this way, a pawn can move this way. Now, in chess, where the, the, move, the move space, shall we say, the parameter yep. space for movement is fairly well defined, it's, 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 a, it's a trivial issue for the computer to compute this. But if you're faced with a problem like linguistics, where things shift and evolve so quickly, right, sort of defining the parameter space becomes next to impossible. The one thing, I mean, the, the, the one example of this that I find really fascinating is Bahasa Melayu. Okay. Uh, Malay is not a difficult language to learn uh -huh. for us. Okay. But have you seen how Malay is used in the present day In uh, has adapted to text speak? I'm going to put a Quora um, article on the show notes. Okay. Because I, I, don't, I don't know enough Malay really. To... Malay text speak is incomprehensible <laughs> it's right. really really arcade right. because for example right uh, i mean I'm, i i don't i don't know uh malay text speak but basically it shortens words by a lot right mm -hmm. so for example saya becomes s-y-a not s-a-y or you know s-y Right. right, and and these are mutually understandable between people who are fluent in Malay. I can right. understand a little bit of it. So I think the example in the Quora article is, okay, saya pun makan nasi dan mi. So I, saya, pun also makan ate nasi dan mi, rice and noodles. Right. Right? So the shortened form is S-Y-A, saya, pun, P-N, uh -huh. <laughs> makan, M-K-N. Makan and M-K-N, you know, interchangeable. Right? You know, we, we right. understand it. Uh, uh, semantically but a computer will struggle when these things right. are used in different ways and sometimes inconsistently as well right I think what we've been circling around is is really a theory of mind right mm, which is right yeah yeah which is what 
is the, I mean, as much as it, I, I kind of hate to phrase it this way, what does a computer understand? Mm. Because okay, even the word understand is extremely loaded, right? Oh, it's loaded shit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't say. And I think, I, I think it kind of, there, when it comes to theory of mind, there are so many, there are so many blanks that we have yet to fill in, right? Like what do dogs understand? What do cats understand? Mm. We don't know, right? That's right. Um, and I think when it comes to something like computers, that's a whole other level of we are we are operating from the assumption that that computers will never have a theory of mind, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. as far as you know, you know, the robots are coming to get us all, Skynet, stuff like that. They are they're just in the realm of science fiction. Well, no, I mean, it's it's entirely possible that, you know, robots are coming to get us. Well, I mean, I think the, 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 the solution has been misframed. It's not yes. because the computers become intelligent enough to kill yes. us all. It's that they're dumb enough to follow simple yes. instructions and exactly. kill us all. Exactly. <laughs> the, they, they might well be coming to get us all, but not because they develop a theory of mind. Yeah. Right. It's because someone fucked up somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that actually kind of reminds me of um, there is that... Let me see if I can dig up that story. But... Um, Which actually... I mean, sorry. Now that you th- when you think about it, a lot of sci-fi stories s- revolve around this, right? Yep. Things like iRobot, things like... Um, uh, iRobot is a weird one. Um, things like, uh, you know, all, all these stories where a, 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 a machine fundamentally misinterprets a prime directive... Yep. and concludes that killing all humans is the best way to achieve this prime directive. It, there is actually it doesn't point to this. intelligence. It just points to extreme reductionism when interpreting a command. There is a term for this. So um, I'm going to put this into... into... Um, into, into the show notes... So this is slightly different because this does assume a kind of theory of mind for right, a computer. Okay. Have you ever played Universal Paper Clips? No. <sighs> I mean, personally, I find it freaking terrifying. Okay. Um, <laughs> it sounds terrifying. Yeah. For what it's worth. So Universal Paper Clips is a game that attempts to. It's a. It's a kind of. It's a sci-fi, you know, Skynet type of game. Um, Already in, not inspiring confidence, but okay. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember the game mechanics or, or the game like canon. But basically, I think you run like a paperclip factory or something. Okay. And then okay. eventually the system that is running... The, let, me, let me just look it up. Come on. The paperclip uprising, dear God. Yeah, I mean... Universal Paperclips Universal Paperclips is a 2017 incremental game created by Frank Lentz of NYU. Oh, Um, okay. The user plays the role of an AI programmed to produce paperclips. Right. Initially, the user clicks on a box to create a single paperclip at a time as other options quickly open up. The user can sell paperclips to create money to finance machines that build paperclips automatically. Okay. 
right? At various levels, the exponential growth plateaus, requiring the user to invest resources such as money, raw materials, or computer cycles into inventing another breakthrough to move to the next phase of growth. Okay. The game ends if the AI succeeds in converting all the matter in the universe into paperclips. <laughs> so, um, uh, the title oh, of the good. game and the overall concept draw from the paperclip maximizer thought experiment first described by Nick Bostrom. Oh, so, shit. Yeah, so Nick Bostrom is... Um, I forget his his academic post. He's at Oxford, I believe. Right. Um, working on... Existential risk. Right? <laughs> okay. So, okay. surprise, surprise. Yeah, and, and is this idea that, you know, if you tell an AI to produce paper clips, yep. right, it doesn't distinguish between purpose and outcome. Yeah. Right? And it's going to just be like, oh, you know, if I can create paper clips as efficiently as possible by turning matter directly into paper clips, I will do that. Yes. But even that... Um, and that's not a sign of intelligence. That's a sign of blindly following orders. That's a right. sign of a lack of theory of mind. Right. So, that part, up to that point, I agree with you. But if you look at what value drift is, right... right. It's a, it's a general term for changes in the set of pre-programmed goals of an AI system. Okay. Right? Although value drift need not be inherently bad, right? Deviation from by an AI from its set objectives is logically contrary to its current objectives. Uh, let me actually open up hmm. the Wikipedia page for it. So, huh, instrumental convergence. It sounds like when a when when a bassoon becomes a tuba or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think in the game, the idea of well, okay, so this is a separate issue, which is when you create a game, right? A game is in itself a model. You are systematizing. <laughs> you are systematizing something that is not naturally. Mm. A system, right? You are like yeah. you know, civilization is a model of civilization, right? Yep. And um, just as Universal Paperclips is a model of what an AI could do in an extreme yes. hypothetical scenario. Yes. Um, and so I actually value drift as it is kind of classically explained. I don't think it is possible. Right, okay. because what you are, okay. what you are, what it's kind of suggesting is when a okay, the AI is told, um, make paper clips. Yeah, it determines that the optimal method of creating paper clips is to convert matter into paper clips. Mm. Right, and then it's kind of saying, because I know this is the optimal solution, I will substitute my original goal of making paper clips with the second thing, which is convert matter into paper clips. Right, right. Okay, okay. It's a priority right. prioritization uh, yep. shift. Yeah. Right. But though calling it value drift, mm. I think is very much a projection of yeah. the human theory of mind. 
onto it's a what the AI term. is doing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because I don't in for the the AI. Okay, the AI does not think, right? The AI is not replacing one goal with another. No. It has simply determined if it were ever to determine that there was another optimal, it would switch. Right? Yes. Uh, but again, this is a this is a trope of sci-fi, right? It, yes. Which is the you know the the whole prime directive, and then your 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 you know your your the prioritization of objectives, which we yep. see in uh, anything that Asimov wrote, but yep. also funnily enough, Robocop. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, and uh, you know, um, I mean, it's the the three laws basically, right? The right, the, right. the three laws yep. of robotics. Uh, yep. um, again, yes. you know, applied again and again it, as a repetitive trope. So Robocop was surprisingly good at, uh, ex- uh, you know, at sort of exploring the issue of r- robotics and machines and, and learning. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Robocop was a very, very interesting movie. Uh, it needs to yeah. be, yeah, it can be infinitely uh, uh, sort of, uh, to- you know, dug into and delved into. But anyway, um, yeah. So where were we? I've lost my train I, I, of thought. I, I don't remember. I mean, AI, broadly speaking, but... Yeah. 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 I mean, okay. In any case, so we've gone past an hour. So we've and gone we've had past a an hour, and I, I would like to stop. So, yeah. Yes. I think this is another kind of interesting area of study for game theory. Because, again, mm, game theory right. is a systematization of decision-making. Decision-making, yes. Yeah. Correct, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so, I mean, it, it does in that sense make perfect sense that AI started with games because at the yeah. point, th- there, w- there was already game theory. Game theory was around like World War II type. Yeah. Um, oh, it's ancient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, a game theory as we know it today was, I think, just post-World War II. Um, uh, yes. I'm not sure yeah. when evolutionary game theory first emerged. Not sure about evolutionary game theory, but I think von Neumann was like mid-20th century. Right. Right. And Claude Shannon was around that time as well, so they kind of came together. Um, uh, oh, 70s. Okay, so that's well after the war. Yeah. Uh, no, evolutionary game theory is, is not, it's not uh, a, game, a game that evolves. It's just... In evolution, <laughs> when you have competition between two organisms, you can model it using game theory. Right. Right. It's a hog, mean, what we call the Hogg-Duff the Hogg-Duff system. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So All population right. plays a game, replicates population at time equals uh, time equals t plus one, and then you iterate again and again. That's that's evolutionary game theory. <laughs> right. Mm, yeah. Okay. And you know, okay, the hawk. I'm gonna just very briefly talk about the hawk dove. The hawk dove okay. situation is: if a hawk meets a hawk, that's competition. If yep. a hawk meets a dove, that's predation. If right. a dove meets a hawk, predation again, and then dove meets dove, it's uh, either coexistence or competition again. Right. That's okay. It. That's a game. <laughs> right, but it has a kind of fractal effect. Yeah. Have, yeah. Yeah. When when populations that iterate and then yeah. they grow. When it's played so over yeah. time. Right. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I think I think. For me, at least, we are starting to get into territory that I really don't understand. So, uh, <laughs> like, if we continue, we're going to start talking nonsense. So, I think Affair. it's just as well we stop here. Um, all right. This is episode 24 of Monkey Mind. You can find the show notes when this eventually gets posted. 
at monkeyvine.xyz slash 024. And uh, we'll see you sometime, I guess. Yes, at some point. Goodbye. All right. Bye-bye.